Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast series. I'm Kara Miller. On today's show, as applications for AI explode, we're going to take a look at rising energy consumption, which has both environmental and financial dimensions. Moving data around is very expensive, and the further you have to move it, the more expensive it's going to be. Vivian C., an associate professor in MIT's Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, talks about why there's growing interest in specialized hardware. And this has come from companies like Google. I think Meta just announced that they had also built some chips. Microsoft. And these are traditionally software companies, but they realize that you need to have specialized hardware um, in order to give you the compute you need to be competitive. But reducing energy consumption means you also have to take a look at your software. What you would like to do is that while you're designing your algorithms, obviously you care about accuracy, um, but it's also important to factor in energy consumption in the design process of the algorithms. And says C, stakes are high, as we increasingly plan for computing to show up pretty much everywhere. Even if each of these vehicles only drove for one hour a day, the amount of energy that they would consume would be comparable to that of, you know, today's data centers. So coming up, the costs of AI computing and the breakthrough work on how to let AI proliferate while still addressing those costs. Vivian C. first began thinking about how crucial energy efficiency is to computing back when she was in grad school at MIT, and she was working on video compression. And this was in the days before the iPhone, so it was a really exciting concept of being able to, you know, process and view video on the phone itself. The thing was, there was not a lot of battery life on phones, which was a serious problem. The hardware had to change, but that was not even good enough. We also realized that there were limits in terms of how low power you could make the hardware before you were limited by the software, the algorithm itself. So then what I started to do was look at how do you actually change the algorithms to also make them more low power friendly. When she returned to MIT as a faculty member in 2013, after working in the Research and Development Center of Texas Instruments, her work expanded and it changed. Beyond compression, she wanted to know if she could make understanding images and video more energy efficient. She co-authored a book called Efficient Processing of Deep Neural Networks and taught classes to MIT students during the year and to those in industry during the summer. And now, amidst a whirlwind of chatter about AI and the proliferation of computing more generally, C's work has taken on a new urgency. I mean, I think there's been a tremendous amount of excitement about the many applications of AI. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it took a really long time uh, for AI to get to where it is today, to have the level Hmm. of accuracy that could actually be deployed and be useful for uh, many things outside of the lab. And I think now is actually the time where, you know, that now that it has that level of accuracy that can actually be used, it now makes sense to kind of look at how to address the cost In particular, what we're talking about here is the computing and the energy consumption cost and also uh, the accessibility of it. But I think like actually, I think that there's been a lot of discussions now more recently about the computing cost because the models 
to make these, in particular, the deep neural network models to make the AI um, work have been quite large. So hmm. I think that a lot of the news has been drummed up by stuff like ChatGPT. And we know that that has hundreds of billions of parameters um, in that model, and it takes millions of dollars to train. Um, so a lot of that cost is actually from the electricity bills. And then it takes potentially even more energy to run the inference um, because you're going to run it many times. And so inference basically means how you would use the model to actually do a task after you've trained it. And so there's, there's been speculations that it's like millions of dollars a month to just do the inference. Wow. Um, so now that there's a cost, a very clear cost associated with it, now there's a clear application of it that people are right. looking to figure out how to cut those costs. You know, I want to go back to something you said before, which is like, there's different ways to deal with the energy. One is to make the hardware more energy efficient. But the other, you talked about uh, making algorithms better and more energy efficient. I think to a lot of people who are less technical than you, um, the notion that some algorithms are less energy efficient and some are more energy efficient would be surprising. Is there a way, like in simple terms, to explain how that is possible? Um, yeah, so I think there's a couple of ways. So we actually, I mean, there's always many ways to do something. So I think the point is that what you would like to do is that while you're designing your algorithms, obviously you care about accuracy, um, but it's also important to factor in energy consumption in the design process of the algorithms. And so this can appear in various different ways. Uh, so for instance, I think one thing is to understand where the energy is being consumed in the algorithm itself. So for example, okay. in deep neural networks, it tends to be this process of your, a deep neural network is composed of these layers and it's kind of these like layer by layer processing, you can imagine, and some layers consume more energy than the others. And so you might want to look at, you know, which layers consume the most amount of energy and then try and optimize those layers to reduce the energy consumption. So you're not changing the entire network, but only maybe a subset of it, um, particularly okay. the part that um, consumes the most amount of energy. I think the other thing, um, which we didn't talk about yeah, but like if, we're, if you think about the hardware itself, I mean, one question is also like, why is there energy uh, consumption or where does the energy uh, consumption go? And actually... It turns out that energy consumption is dominated by what we call data movement. So, for example, if you want to do a multiplication, it actually takes more energy to read the inputs to that multiplier from some memory and then to write the results of that multiplication than to perform the multiplication itself, right? So, really, if you want to address energy efficiency, you want to reduce the cost or the frequency in which you're moving data around. And so, you know, the notion of when you're designing specialized hardware uh, for deep neural nets, what you want, if you want to make the specialized hardware energy efficient, you really want to target this data movement. This could be by doing things like um, exploiting what we call data reuse. So if you're going to use the same piece of data over and over again, uh, maybe you can, you know, read it once, move it close to the compute, and then use it many times. Hmm. Um, you could also structure the hardware so that the storage is much closer to where you're doing the computation. So you don't have to move as far. And so as a result, the data movement is uh, much cheaper. Uh, so, you know, in collaboration with Joel Emmer, who is also a professor um, in CSAIL, and our student Yushin Chen, we had looked at this in the context of deep neural networks and how do you design these energy efficient 
uh, data flows that really optimize for data reuse and minimize data movement. And that allowed us to, you know, design this chip that's called Iris that achieves like an order of magnitude more lower energy than mobile GPUs. Now, on the flip side of that, when you look, go back to the software side of things, you can also say, hey, if I know that data movement is very expensive, can I design these neural networks that are, you know, require less data movement? Can it? Ex- can we have neural networks that use data that's reused multiple times so that the hardware can exploit this? And that's kind of one form of doing the co-design of both the algorithms and the hardware together for energy efficiency. And when you talk about sending data around, in a simple way, it sounds like, you know, if you've got a cell phone and you're trying to do four times five, it's better if it can be done there than if it's like outsourced, essentially like, oh, can it be done in the cloud and then sent back here? That's very costly energy wise. Exactly. So I think, yeah, so I think the analogy is in general, moving data around is very expensive. And the further you have to move it, the more expensive it's going to be. So obviously having to transmit something to the cloud and back, that's very expensive. So obviously Mm. locally, if you want to do it on the phone, that's going to be more energy efficient. But even when you're saying on the phone, there's other different levels of making it local. So for example, when we look at a computer, you have a computer chip that's doing the processing, but you also will have an additional chip not on the chip itself that is storing data, the memory, what we would call you know, DRAM, for example. So some of you buy or assemble computers DRAM. And so reading data from that DRAM, which is not on the chip where the processing is happening, is going to be much more expensive than reading the data from a memory that's actually built onto the same computer chip as where the processing is happening. But of course, you know, there's a limitation in terms of how much you can store on the computer chip itself. So the idea here is that if you read the data, let's say once from the DRAM, you want and store it on chip, you want to use that piece of data as many times as possible on your computer chip. So then you can really reduce the amount of expensive data movement or data access from that DRAM itself. So you've talked about a few reasons why you might really want to be able to do a lot more on these edge devices like cell phones, um, like these things sort of on the edge of the network, then maybe we do now. Do you want to talk about like what might be the motivation? Obviously, there's the energy efficiency piece of it, but there's a sort of other things that being energy efficient can allow you to do and other motives that might drive you. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's several reasons why you want to do the compute locally as opposed to push it to the cloud. So I think the first thing is that ideally you would like for the technology to not be reliant on some large communication network. You want to kind of untether yourself from the communication network and that increases accessibility. We know that, you know, around the world and even in the U.S., there are areas where you don't have a very strong communication network. And so there's a lot of, you know, promising applications for AI. We want that to be accessible to everyone. So even those who are not connected to whatever um, network or the cloud. The other thing, of course, is actually privacy and security. So there's a lot of exciting applications, again, that involve very sensitive data, be it, you know, health data or financial data. And again, it will be more secure. And for privacy reasons, you might want to, you know, bring the you know, compute to where the data is being collected, let's say on your device, rather than sending that very sensitive data to the cloud itself. Um, And then finally, there's a lot of applications where you need to interact with the world, right? So uh, for example, self-driving cars or robotics is one, another would be, you know, AR and VR. 
In those situations, latency is really critical. So the reaction time is very key. And so you might not have enough time, let's say if you're in a, in a robot, to send the information to the cloud, wait for it to be processed and come back, especially if you're moving at very high speeds. Right, 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 right. Do you want to talk about one of those, I don't know, maybe health or like a specific example where you could imagine that if you could get things more energy efficient, then possibilities would open up that maybe do not currently exist? Um, So I think like very much the more obvious one would be the robotics and the navigation side of it, because really Mm -hmm. it is, there are a lot of cases where you really both from a functionality standpoint, from a latency and interaction standpoint that, you know, being tethered to the cloud would not work. And also it would be very, I guess, dangerous if you're reliant on a communication to the cloud and then you, you know, you lose connection, you would want your vehicle (laughs) to be able to, you know, be able to navigate itself. So I think that's really been very critical. I think there's a lot of excitement in the healthcare space. I think that that's still kind of trying to figure out where's the best place to use um, AI in, in that particular space. One thing that we've been looking at, this is in collaboration with um, Thomas Helt, who's also a faculty member at MIT. Um, we've been looking at the application of eye tracking, um, particularly as it relates to um, using that to detect or diagnose neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. As it turns out, there's a correlation between you know how your eye moves and its reaction time to whether or not you have those diseases or the progression of that disease. And in the past, um, a lot of the tests in terms of doing, you know, the eye tracking was done in the clinic um, on these expensive hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars machines to do like kind of the eye movement evaluation. Um, And what we've been looking at is whether or not it's feasible to do these tests in home on, you know, your tablet or your phone um, and collect a lot of eye data movement. And this allows um, you to provide additional information to a clinician to help make these diagnoses or actually you know, determine whether or not certain medication works or not works. And in these particular cases, again, you might not want to share all the data of your you know, eye movements and stuff um, off of the phone. So doing it locally might be desirable. You know, when we talk about the work that you're doing in trying to make Um, computing more energy efficient. Can you just give a sense of like magnitude? How big a problem is this? Like, do you feel like, uh, boy, we're we're a good chunk of the way there or, oh my gosh, we're, (laughs) you know, we're like 1% of the way down the road or like, you know, in order to let's say, have some of these applications where, yeah, you have self-driving car, you can't have latency, so you have to have things more at the edge. Um, You have to have more computing power. Um, Like, I guess I just wonder, like, how far are you down the road of solving this problem? Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot more to do. So I, I would put it this way. I think the impact of this problem depends on two things. It depends on how much computation you have to do for a given task and then how many devices out there that are performing this task. So in terms of looking at how much computation you need to do for a given task, when we look at the trends for, let's say, deep neural networks, which is one of the kind of core techniques for AI that has really given this, you know, incredibly high amount of accuracy that we're seeing, we've seen over the past 10 years or so, um, or even less than 10 years, that in conjunction with the significant increase of accuracy of these techniques, 
we see orders of magnitude, like hundreds of thousands of um, X fold increase in terms of the amount of compute that you actually need. Hmm. Um, and so as you know, the amount of compute rises, obviously we need to continue to push on the energy efficiency because it makes the task much more challenging. So from a, both the algorithms perspective and from the hardware perspective, uh, we need to continue to innovate to you know, drop the energy efficiency. So from a hardware perspective, some of the new things that people are looking at are also things like, can we actually move the computation into the memory itself? So rather than just putting the compute and the memory closer together, can we you know, embed the compute into the memory or the storage element itself? And there's been a huge amount of um, work in that space. And so there, there certainly is a you know, continued demand for that. Then if you think of the problem also from a scale point of view, in terms of like the number of devices that are using this, um, it also can grow significantly. So uh, some of the work that um, one of my, myself and my collaborator, uh, Sirtesh Karaman, who's also a faculty at MIT and our student, uh, Samia Sadukar, had looked at recently was, well, we have focused a lot of our uh, research on, you know, making um, AI energy efficient um, uh, for edge devices, in particular with Surtesh, we've been looking at in the robotic space, but looking at, you know, the, what we call low energy robots where actuation is uh, very low cost. Um, but we were kind of curious to see, you know, what are the implications of this if we look at, you know, larger vehicles, for example, self-driving cars, which also require a huge amount of compute. And so we kind of did a study, uh, or we did a study, and Samia looked really deeply in terms of what are kind of the trends in this space, or how can we kind of model, you know, what's happening in terms of compute for self-driving cars and the adoption of self-driving cars. And surprisingly, what it revealed was that, you know, if you consider the fact in a self-driving uh, vehicle, you have many cameras on a self-driving car because you need to understand its surroundings. So it's a huge amount of data um, being pulled in. And if you kind of look at the trends of, you know, how many vehicles are, are out there and, you know, in, in the ideal case, how, much, how many self-driving cars, if they were all to, or a significant portion of them were to become self-driving cars, let's say if you had like a billion vehicles, even if each of these vehicles only drove for one hour a day, the amount of energy that they would consume would be comparable to that of, you know, today's data centers. So it's just the scale of the number of devices and the amount of data that needs to crunch through can be quite significant. So the other aspect of energy efficiency is to look at from the angle of sustainability and the carbon footprint. And so obviously, as we move forward with these very promising and exciting technologies, we also need to consider their impact on the environment. Um, And so their energy efficiency is also pretty key. So it's not not to say that we should not do self-driving cars, but as we're designing these vehicles, it's important to consider the energy efficiency of the compute because we're adding compute that wasn't there before. And yes, of course, I think that's also factored in in general because you want to you know, increase the distance of the vehicle that you can drive. So you care about energy efficiency anyways. But even if we had you know, better batteries to you know, store more energy, you would still want to account for that fact that that energy has to come from somewhere. And so um, accounting for energy efficiency of the compute, which wasn't there before, um, is really critical. Do you feel like the work you do and just more broadly, the idea of energy efficiency could help to make AI more ubiquitous? Um, Certainly. I think that that's one of the thing. one of the goals, at least, is to, you know, there's a lot of promising applications for AI, but we certainly want it to be 
both accessible. So as I mentioned before, not relying on a huge amount of compute, because also a lot of people can't afford, you know, huge you know, racks of servers to run right. their application. Um, and then there's also, you know, really exciting applications where if you could embed AI at a lower cost, you can really utilize it to you know, be using a lot of applications. I'm not an expert in this particular situation, but I know that, if, for example, in agriculture, there's a lot of, you know, exciting use cases hmm. to have AI and putting these sensors around uh, the fields to, you know, collect more useful data that can inform the farmer. But of course, you know, you don't have a lot of energy out there. You don't want to be constantly replacing batteries. So it can be useful for those particular applications as well. Do you feel like uh, in your experience, the business community realizes the importance of the, they certainly recognize the importance of embedding AI in everything they do. I feel like that's a, a, a common thing from businesses now is like, how will we thread in AI to our business? Do you think people are aware of energy efficiency in the same way? Um, actually, I do think so in the sense that there's been a lot more um, interest in building, uh, you know, specialized compute hardware, and this has come from, you know, companies like Google. I think Meta just announced that they had also built some chips. Uh, Microsoft, and these are traditionally software companies, but they realize that you need to have specialized hardware um, in order to give you the compute you need to be competitive. Uh, another lens to look at this is that there's been a huge number of uh, hardware startups out there, primarily looking at, you know designing specialized chips for AI, some of which are investigating this whole, you know, putting compute into the memory or even doing compute with light. Again, because they realize that you need a lot more computation to support AI. And part of the thing that limits computation is the amount of power that you can supply to your chip. So if you would give for a given limited amount of power, if you can cram more computation into there, then you can, you know, run a lot faster. So their energy efficiency is the key you know, way to cram more compute for a given power envelope. What do you feel like the biggest hurdles are going forward? And how are you thinking about addressing those hurdles? Um, so I think one thing that I, I or two things that I am particularly interested in is as we, we were just talking about in terms of, you know, one way to address the energy cost of AIs to build very specialized hardware that targets um, AI. That being said, the more specialized you are, that also limits your flexibility. And hmm. in the context of AI and deep neural networks, this is a very fast moving and growing field. So from both the research perspective, and I think it also applies in industry, is that how do you build specialized chips that are efficient, but also flexible? Right. So every single time you introduce flexibility, usually there is going to be some form of cost in terms of you know, energy efficiency or um, so on. But how do you kind of find the right places to add that flexibility where it's worth paying a little bit more um, cost, but you can, as a result, your hardware is much more flexible. It can support a wider range of tasks. And also you try to kind of future-proof it somewhat. We talked about the fact that you know, these self-driving vehicles also need to use AI. And so you can imagine that you're, unlike your phone, you're not going to, you know, swap out your car every right. two, three years, ideally. And right, so right. you would want some hardware, you know, whatever computer you have there to last long enough in the future. Um, right. And so I think that's going to be one of the challenges that also folds into actually also sustainability. Because as it turns out, 
The carbon footprint of computing is not just the energy that it consumes while running the processor, but there's also a carbon footprint of manufacturing the processor mm-hmm. itself or right. the computer chip. And um, there's been a lot of research at this for various places. Um, and so one of the goals there is that if you can make a chip that's more flexible, hopefully that also means that it can last longer um, or has a longer use life. And so then this carbon footprint will be lower as well. So I think that that is a, a challenge that we need to look and address and just kind of think through what does it mean to be both flexible and efficient. In your experience, how have you found that your work most commonly sort of makes it out into the real world, hardware or software? Like, what is the path that that generally takes? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's been a couple of ways in which we can translate some of our research from the lab out to um, industry. I think the first is obviously the educational component. So I think yeah. it's always good to kind of teach. I mean, it's like I'm in this job, but like teach or advise <laughs> in terms of like, how do you think about this problem? What are the questions right. that you should be answering? Because, you know, it's one thing just to be like, you know, you can evaluate different designs yourself, but it's better to for the, you know, the people to learn the principles of doing that, and doing that themselves. Um, so I think the the educational component is really key. And this is why we wrote the book and we ran a bunch of tutorials. I think that the second part is obviously you can do it in form of like advising and consulting various companies in terms of, you know, the directions that they should head, the questions that they should be asking. And certainly there's been a lot of interest in, you know, you know forming companies and doing startups in this area. I myself have not pursued it, but there's a lot of colleagues of mine who are in this space as well who have pursued that avenue as well. Yeah. A final question for you, which is, um, when you sort of look ahead, what do you feel like personally is something you're most excited about in terms of a problem you want to solve, the the piece of this you want to tackle, or just like what, yeah, what kind of gets you excited when you think about the years ahead? Yeah, so I think there's two things. So one is certainly trying to make AI more accessible to more folks in the sense of not letting the compute costs be a barrier. And actually, over the past couple of years, really trying to focus on, um, in general, even beyond AI. So my area of expertise is energy-efficient computing. Um, we've primarily targeted maybe smaller devices, mobile devices, but really given um, the challenges that we face in terms of carbon emission sustainability, trying um, to see if we can apply some of those techniques to aid in the you know challenge of sustainability, which is our, one of our grand challenges of today. So whether it be applying to things like, I think there's actually a lot of exciting work already going on in the the data center side, but looking also at, are there other areas, one of which was, for example, self-driving vehicles and other areas where we can apply these energy efficient techniques to really reduce the carbon footprint of computing because the demands for computing continue to grow. So effectively, basically, how do you get the benefits of computing without and trying to minimize the cost of that. Because we know having computing has really helped a lot of people, but at the same time to mitigate the cost, the environmental cost of computing. Right. Vivian C. is an associate professor in MIT's Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. She's a co-author of Efficient Processing of Deep Neural Networks. Vivian, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website, 
at cap.csale.mit.edu. And keep listening to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast, Stay Ahead of the Curve. I'm Kara Miller. Thanks for joining us.